Welcome to the Washdown Podcast, episode number 99. And tonight I am talking with retired RCMP officer Lori White. And Lori has a very inspirational and interesting story, and we had a great conversation. So I'm not going to give you guys too much detail. You're just going to have to listen to the podcast. Um, but I had a great time. Um, we had a great conversation. Hopefully you guys learned some stuff from it. Um, so yeah, like, and subscribe and all that stuff. And, uh, here's episode number 99 of the Washdown podcast with special guest, Lori White. Well, I guess it did it a little bit faster than it normally does. Usually I hit that record button and it takes a little second for it to think about it and then go, oh yeah, hey, now we're recording. So Lori, welcome to the show. Thanks for, uh, thanks for agreeing to come on. I'm glad that uh, Mike could connect us. Um, so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, we'll just get into this. Sure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here. It was a good uh, chance meeting with Mike down at the Wounded Blue Conference. So thank you for, for having me. So my name is Lori White. I am a retired uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police Sergeant. And I retired about three years ago from that. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, is the federal police force here in Canada. So I'm zooming in today from just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, where it is lovely and an awesome fall day. So here I am. Fantastic. Um, so how many Dudley Do-Right jokes did you hear <laughs> whenever you were at the conference? You know, <laughs> it's so funny. I don't know that I've even heard that name for 15 years and I heard it about six times there. So <laughs> that just goes to show you the differences in oh, our yeah. experiences and our awareness of uh the Royal Canadian Mount of Police. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, even though, you know, Canada and the United States are right next to each other, it's, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, I think, but there seems to be a lot of differences too about, you know, just your police force, your military, your firefighters and all that stuff. Yeah, I think you're right there. There definitely are. And certainly the the guns and all that, that's a much different situation in the States versus here as well. So um, it, it was an eye opener. That was my first time presenting in the States. And I was so grateful for the opportunity to, to expand my connections and, and meet some new people. So uh, it was a really good experience. Cool. So let's get on with the, uh, the reason why you're here. So I know you wrote a book about your experiences. So just start from the beginning. Like, why did you want to be a cop? And specifically in the RCMP? Okay, so I am not one of those people who grew up with a very committed focus on becoming a police officer. And sometimes I feel like I need to sort of explain that a little bit differently. I grew up in Ontario about an hour outside of Ottawa. And where I grew up, um, the RCMP has a different profile because while we're the federal police force, so we're all across the country in different provinces, we do different roles. So there's federal roles, there's provincial roles, and then there's municipal roles, essentially. And so where I grew up, we had our own municipal force. I also lived slightly outside of that town. And so there was a provincial police force as well. And then there was the RCMP because we live actually where I grew up is right on the New York state border. And so you could see the states from, from our town. 
And so when I was growing up, I saw the RCMP in mostly plainclothes kinds of jobs, the federal enforcement type stuff, like not the, the day-to-day general duty kind of uniforms. And so I actually went off to university after high school to become what I thought was going to be a phys ed teacher. And then I uh, changed my tune when I was in third year university. I was substitute teaching at the high school that I had gone to. And of course, I was only 21. So I wasn't a whole lot older than some of the kids that I was substitute teaching for. (laughs) Probably uh, a senior when some of them were a freshman. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so it was... uh, it was quite an experience this one day, and I, I always joke and say this is the day that I decided to become a police officer. It, it actually wasn't in hindsight, but it's kind of a good story anyway. So I had a 75-minute class of grade nines. There were 23 boys and three girls, so there was a lot of sort of puberty-level boys and testosterone in that class. And, of course, no material left for the 75 minutes that I was there to entertain these students. So it was a lot to try to keep them quiet and keep them contained in this classroom with the door closed. And finally the bell rings and I'm thinking, oh my God, thank God, that was a lot. Like it was a lot of shenanigans happening. So I turn around and I'm about ready to turn off the light in the classroom, class is filing out. And all of a sudden, one of the boys who had been very vocal hauled off and just whacked me on the ass. And I was shocked. And he tears off down the hall pretty excited with himself that he did that to a 21-year-old teacher. And I, of course, tore off down the hall after him. And I catch him and I grab him with a scruff of the neck and throw him up against the locker. And I'm kind of like, <sighs> and I didn't really know what to do with him. So I joke and say that's the day I decided that teaching was maybe not for me and maybe police officer would be a good career fit. <laughs> it wasn't, I didn't do anything oh. to him. And I actually continued on after that. And I finished my undergrad degree, got my master's degree and promptly moved back home with my parents. So that was not exactly what I had in mind. That 23 was to be bartending, uh, back to substitute teaching. I was a skating coach and I was a fitness instructor. And so I was very busy, but none of those jobs were things that I saw myself doing long-term. So it was pretty demoralizing really, because I had done two degrees in five years. I was really focused and had worked really hard, um, but I just didn't see a lot of hope. And... I keep a file still to this day of what I call my PFO letters. I'm allowed to swear on here, right? Oh, absolutely. It's the internet. Okay. That's what I thought. <laughs> so the PFO letters are my please fuck off letters. They are the letters that when I was applying to every job under the sun, I was just getting denied, denied, declined. Like, no, it was so hard on my self-esteem. And so it was, uh, it was a really frustrating time. I thought that I'd done all the right things. I thought that I had made all the right choices. I thought that I had... Done all the things that you're supposed to do for life mm-hmm. to kind of fall into place, and it wasn't. Um, but that's actually when I met somebody who was a royal. He was an RCMP officer in my gym that I was teaching at, and uh, he said, "Laura, you know, you like you're fit. You're into, you know, exercise and stuff. You got a background in this, and and you're outgoing. Like, have you ever considered policing?" And I really hadn't given it much thought. So at his encouragement, um, or you know, with his encouragement, I. I looked into it a little bit more and, and I applied. And by August of 1995, I was at our training academy, which is in Regina, Saskatchewan, where you go for six and a half months to live in paramilitary style barracks. Like I had 31 other women in my bedroom and I didn't shower alone for six months. And uh, it was it was a big eye opener. But once I was there, I was just um, so devoted and so passionate about it. I was really keen. I really felt like I'd made 
the right choice, you know, even though I wasn't one of those people who had, as a child said, I'm always going to become a, a Mountie. Right. So was it in Canada, is it uh, like hard to get a teaching job? Is that like one of those things that are just kind of locked down for a long time? If well, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, actually, so you have to go to teacher's college, and I had decided after that incident in uh, in the school that I was no longer going to become a teacher, and so I switched and did a master's instead. Um, okay. So I had some other thoughts on what I would do with a phys ed degree and a master's in, in gym, but um, they didn't pan out either. So um, yeah, so I, I don't know if I would have been able to find a teaching job had I pursued that, but I would have needed a different degree. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. So you go to you know, you meet somebody at the gym who suggests, you know, hey, come be a Royal Canadian, Canadian Mounted Police guy. And yeah. so, I mean, at the time, I'm sure it may be different now than it was then, but is it like hard to get hired or did your degrees help or because I know that some places here, you know, they, they want you to have a criminal justice degree for that kind of law enforcement and, and all of that stuff. Well, I think it's like all the, the agencies out there now, I think it probably helped at that time that I was female. I, I don't really know what the standards exactly were. Um, and I know that they was shift sometimes too, depending on what the needs of the communities are and things, but it may have helped that I was a female, but I did have two degrees and I also was 25. So it wasn't like I was 18 um, with no life experience. I, you know, I, I was well into my twenties. And so, um, and I was a hell of a good choice, frankly. <laughs> hey, you're selling it to me. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so you get done with training. So you said six months in the academy and then what you have like a field training, you know, FTO time of a year, six months, 18 months. And then are you on your own or are you working with a partner or does that just vary depending on what you're doing, I guess? Yeah. So those are good questions, actually. So when you finish your, it was just over six months in, in Regina, um, you get assigned your community. And when you sign on the dotted line, like when you graduate training and you sign on the dotted line, you're signing up to go wherever they send you in Canada. So <laughs> that's a, it's a big, big country. Uh, yeah. And, and there are a lot of different kinds of roles that you can do. Like you can go way up North um, to very remote fly-in kinds of communities, or you can go to uh, Surrey, which I, I actually happen to live in Surrey, which is the biggest municipal um, detachment that they have in the country. And there's, I don't know, I think seven or 800 members here. So it, it's, it's, you know, it's a city four. So yeah. there's a very broad spectrum of, of things that you could possibly be doing. So uh, while I was in training, they say, okay, write down your top three choices. And so in terms of provinces, so I had chosen Ontario, second was Alberta, and third was British Columbia. I'm in British Columbia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that one of those things where it's like you pick, but we're just going to send you wherever we want to anyway? Yeah. I don't even know why we go through that, honestly, yeah. because I think it's probably changed now. I mean, this is going back uh, several years, right? But I think it's probably changed now because I think they recognize that the amount of money that they spend to train us, it's kind of foolish to not sort of work with us 
in order mm -hmm. to make everybody happy, right? Because you end up, the retention factor is important. And um, if you oh, feel, absolutely. you know, send somebody to some community that they are so isolated, feel alone, feel disconnected, all those things, I mean, they're going to quit and go join some other agency. So I, I think we're probably getting better at that, but I'm, I'm retired now. So I, I can't really speak for sure to it, but I, I would think that we're, we're doing a better job of that. So when I was um, getting close to my, the end of my training, I knew at this point that I was going to British Columbia. And then I remember standing at attention in our drill hall in my, you know, and standing there and they always called you by your last name. And they said, white kid, I'm at, and that was my posting. And I'm like, where the hell is kid, I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> so I quickly ran to a paper map because of course it was 1990, early 96. Mm. So I went to paper map and if you're not from BC, I don't know, I thought Vancouver pretty much was BC. And so I start mm. doing concentric circles around the city of Vancouver and I'm not seeing anything called Kitimat. And then I went north, 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 north. And I'm like, okay, there it is. So that's what my first posting was, Kitimat, British Columbia on the, you know, the West Coast. Um, but, and the very, you know, the very West coast, but up North in British Columbia. So pretty close to Alaska then is that not too, like, yeah, actually not too far. Yeah. And it, um, yeah. And so it was, uh, it was an eye opener. It was maybe 10,000 population, uh, very kind of industrial town. There's pulp and paper mill and, uh, uh, an aluminum smelter and a methanol plant. Those were the three main employers at the time. Mm -hmm. So many of the people in the community we're making a lot more money than I was, uh, lots of disposable income, lots of people graduating high school. And kind of the expectation was that they would go to work at one of those places and, and make that kind of money. That was a, um, there were lots of good career opportunities within those, those industries. So it was a bit of an eye opener in, in many, many ways. <laughs> like I might've signed up for the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how long were you on until you got shot. So when I went there, I, yeah, it was about two and a half years. And in those two and a half years at the very beginning or close to the very beginning, they actually uh, changed our shift schedule. So our shift schedule was uh, 10 months of almost 10 months of straight night shifts for me. And so they had, what they did was they assigned certain people to night shifts and certain people to day shifts. And I was one of the night shifts. So for a young, at that time I was 26 for a young, um, single female in a Northern community with no family. I didn't know any, I didn't have any friends, of course, just the people like my colleagues slowly became my friends, but certainly when I went there, I didn't have any, and it was, so it was a lot. So I couldn't get involved in some of the things that I wanted to do. I, I couldn't really um, play on a baseball team. I couldn't play on a curling team. Like I just couldn't participate in some of those things. So my quality of life was kind of lacking and it was a struggle. And so I thought, okay, if this schedule keeps up, like I just, I can't, I can't do it. So what I did was I thought, okay, if I give myself to one year, then at least I, I, I will not consider it quitting if I leave after one year, like one year is a fair amount of time to say, all right, like I've done my part yeah. here, but this is not sustainable. Yeah. If, if it's not for you at that time, then yeah. But I yeah. do, th I think that's a fair amount of time to try really any career, you know, and you can put the fire service in that as well. Uh, and, and we've had this conversation um, and especially whenever it pertains to mental health and stuff of, you know, the common saying is, well, if you can't handle it, then you, you don't belong in this career field, but we kind of typically look down on those people that, you know, do decide, Hey, this isn't for me. 
I'm going to go do something else whenever we should be like, oh, you know what? That's them being self-aware and realizing they could be happier doing something else. Agreed. And, and it's, the t it's the totality of the situation, right? Like everybody yeah. brings a whole bunch of different things to the table. Yeah, exactly. If I would have moved there with a spouse or a couple of kids or something like that, I might have had a tremendous experience right off the bat, but that wasn't what I was bringing to the table at that time in my life. And so I think we need to take a step back sometimes and look at all the factors and all the dynamics before we um, wash our hands of the person and say, okay, well, they're a quitter or they're not cut out for this job. Yeah, absolutely. You're 100% correct. So I got to a year and made it to you know to there and then the, the schedule had changed and I was really feeling like I was kind of finding my groove and I had met some you know some people I was able to slowly start getting involved in some of the sports and activities that I like to do and I started doing a lot of the sex crime and uh, a lot of the sex crime investigations which uh, I think as a female member often land on your desk anyhow um, but I actually really um, liked that kind of work I thought it was a really good fit for me so it was one of those files that led me to to my shooting a couple of years later. So in uh, September of 1998, I had enough information to be able to get some charges laid or a charge laid against a, a 44 year old man in, in town. He was a suspected sex offender. And so I had had a victim come forward and, and uh, he had gone for his first appearance in September of 1998. And I think because it was a small town, I was you know, young myself, fairly approachable, fairly outgoing. A lot of the kids in the community knew me. I did school liaison as well. So I was pretty well known. And I think some of the other younger girls and, and other victims felt more confident in coming forward now that the initial complainant had come forward. So it was kind of one of those snowball effects, right? Well, if, if you know, if she felt comfortable talking to Lori, I'll go talk to Lori too. And, and so I was able to get some more information and, and some more evidence to go back and um, lay some more charges. And so on November 27th of 1998, I, along with two partners, attended his residence and he lived in a townhouse complex. And I was on the right-hand side of the door underneath the carport and a partner was on the left-hand side, and we had a third partner around the back of the unit. And we're just standing there, and all of a sudden I hear this pop, and it was like a balloon popped right beside my ear. And it was like an instant reverberation in my head. And it was kind of like an instant disconnect as well in terms of my hearing. And so my ears were buzzing, like ringing louder than, I joked before and said it was louder than they rang when I was at the Rolling Stones concert in 1998 or 19. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was so loud. It was just, it was a crazy feeling of vibration in my head. And as I looked ahead of me, I, I, I saw a black hole in the, in the white door and I smelled the familiar smell of gunpowder and I tasted the gritty residue on my tongue and it just, I felt all, and I looked down and I see this smoke coming from my shin and it was sort of gray, black, white smoke. And I looked at, and then that's when I realized like all my senses had kicked in, but my brain hadn't figured out, like I've been shot. And I said, I said that to my partner, I said, I've been shot. And he's like, what? And I said, I've been shot. And he's like, well, lie down. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> Seems logical. <laughs> Yep. That's, it, that's so crazy that like that disconnect can happen, you know, between your brain and your body and how powerful that can be. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, 
incredible like reciting kind of what happened in that sort of systematic way it was literally a split second right but i mean to me it felt like time kind of slowed down mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people who go through a traumatic incident will will tell you the same thing and um so i laid down it was my right shin that had been shot and i laid down and it tucked in sort of my right leg to my left leg as we do when we when we're injured we hug everything close to our core mm -hmm. And my partner on that was in beside me, um, he quickly looked and, and he dragged me by the back of my gun belt and by the back of my collar and around a vehicle that was nearby to kind of get me out of the line of fire. And he said, okay, you know, you've got one bullet hole to your leg and I hear him go on the radio and here in Canada, the worst radio code possible is 1033. It means an officer down mm -hmm. and it means everybody drop what they're doing and hurry, it's this is urgent, this is life and death. And so that was really the first thing that registered with me was that 1033 code. And so that's why my book is called 1033. Um, an officer down steps back up, but I'll get to that after. But um, yeah. I have to I have to explain that because I know the codes are different in the United States. So yeah. Um, so he he goes on the radio and then I hear the sirens and the firefighters and paramedics um, in that town, they do the same job. And so of course we're all the first responders. So we all know each other and it's a small town. So we're all kind of friends and um, two of them come running in, like they, they parked their ambulance just not too far away, but a little bit out of the line of fire, of course. And yeah. they came running in and I could just see their eyes were both wide. And one of them grabbed me underneath my knees and one of them grabbed me underneath my armpits and just like hustled out. Like they just ran with me, sprinted back to the to the um, ambulance. And I, I, I remember obviously the sirens going and I get down to this small hospital that's in this community and, and they're making all those arrangements for me to head to Vancouver. And so, you know, it's a serious trauma case when you're going to Vancouver on a, an emergency situation, the medevac was getting ready to, to take me. And I just remember all the chaos kind of ensuing around me and there was someone was taking off my rings and they were cutting my clothes. And somebody came in and said, Lori, Lori, do you have any dying declarations? And I'm thinking, what the fuck is a dying declaration? I don't remember that from training. <laughs> That's shit. a lot. Like, I, didn't I know just dying. got shot in the shin. <laughs> yeah. And so when that got said, I remember like patting down my torso and my hips and thinking, did I get shot somewhere else too? And I just didn't, like, I was just so hyper-focused on the leg one that I just wasn't aware. Um, so that was, that was highly stressful, just added another layer to an already very stressful time. And I was conscious for maybe four hours, I think, while they were making all those arrangements and, and dealing with, you know, the, the trauma situation. Um, and then I, I lost consciousness, but I remember in those hours thinking to myself, okay, I have to blink. Like if I can blink, then that's proof that I'm alive. Like if I close my eyes. I'm not sure what that means because someone just said dying declaration. I don't know. Am I am, am I dying? I don't know. But if I can keep my eyes open, then clearly I'm not dead. Uh, yeah, exactly. It took them four hours for you to medevac you. That's my understanding. Like it takes a lot to to. Um, yeah, I, I, that's my understanding. Well, I don't. Well, it didn't take me four hours. I think it took me. It was several hours. I don't know, a couple hours to get that all organized. And then by the time I landed there, I think it was about four hours that I was conscious. Okay. So not four hours necessarily to get the medevac going. It was like the whole duration of, you know, getting, getting shot, getting down there, getting the ambulance ready and then getting down before I lost consciousness. Right. Right. I get it. And well, it is a it, pretty vast distance. It's not like, you know, you're on the outskirts of Vancouver and it's, you know, a five minute helicopter ride. So yes, exactly. 
Yeah. We don't have those resources just sitting there at the ready either. That's exactly right. You're the federal police. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a come from like the north, right? And that's the thing, like even the emergency response team, right? We don't have a team just sitting there in the community waiting to go. And so right. those guys, gals, they're they're coming from all over, like a big geographical um, distance, right. right? In order to to get together and then make a cohesive approach, right? So there's yeah. a lot of resources to activate. Yeah, and I think it's easy for people, especially if you live in a metropolitan area, to kind of forget that of, you know, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's a town of 10,000, so they should have these resources or these resources. You don't really think about, well, it's just a town of 10,000. Like, it's not a suburb of a city no. with 10, it's, you know, it's a standalone town way out away from everything, so exactly you know if and, when if we, if we had to call for like the dog to come i mean they were they have a very broad area to cover so mm -hmm. god forbid you need them over here and they're like literally hundreds of miles away right that's just how how it is yeah yeah so you're uh, right like people don't really recognize that we're it's not an urban area it's a it's a very vast um rugged kind of terrain type of a section of the province so yeah so, so so I come too. <laughs> okay. Uh, after about uh, apparently like a eight hour marathon surgery and I am delivered the news that my injury was so severe to my leg that my lower leg uh, had to be amputated to save my life. And so mm. my leg was amputated about five inches below my right knee. So the bullet was from a sawed off 303 rifle. And those kinds of bullets, to my knowledge now, when they hit something hard, so my shin bones, um, they mushroom and pretty much took my whole calf with it. And so what they were trying to do in that trauma surgery was they were trying to restore circulation to my foot to see if they could, of course. And so in doing that, they would take chunks of my inner left leg, thigh, vein to try to connect the circulation and keep the circulation going to my foot, but um, they were unable to. And so I, in that, not that it really matters, but it goes to show you, I have a scar from literally the top of my groin until the inside of my knee. So they tried for a long time, that whole, that whole section of vein, which is, you know, this far um, is, is gone because that's how many times they were trying to, to restore the circulation and they just were unsuccessful. And so they've, that was the the final result was an amputated leg so i just remember sitting there in the hospital of course very drugged uh, very groggy um it was middle of the night i think it was three or four in the morning and i i hadn't i mean i just couldn't even wrap my head around that like amputation like i i, don't, I it just it was such a foreign word so it was it was a lot to digest yeah how long until you came out of all the the drug fog and it really hit you and then what did you do and what, well, what resources did they give you i think they did a, a pretty good job and considering it was 1998 i mean i, I really do think that they did a, a pretty good job I, mean, I was very fortunate the surgeons and the, the healthcare i got in vancouver that was like tremendous um they brought in a psychiatrist it, you know i'm not exactly sure of the timing but a few days in to meet with me but I mean, I was very drugged still, and it was more just like, oh, no, she seems to be doing as well as she could be under the circumstances, but if she needs something, reach out, and that's fair. Um, but because my situation was really high profile, 
And uh, again, it wasn't really, the, the internet wasn't exactly um, in the same, uh, it wasn't as prominent in our lives in 1998 as it currently is. And so I was a very high profile in a pre-internet stage really. Yeah. And, um, but I did a, I did a media a press conference and I mean, it just, I felt like this obligation to this, to society that I should be doing this. It was so crazy. I look what? back on it now and I go, I know it was so weird, but me, I was all you over the news, right? Healing and recovering. Take your time. Well, I was, I was for, I was in there for almost three weeks. Um, but I was heavily, heavily drugged, especially at the very beginning. And I had several more procedures too, to try to close up the end of my stump and to deal with debriding and getting the bullet fragments and the bone fragments out and kind of clear out some of the tissue. Um, so it was definitely a long, um, shitty, shitty time. It very, uh, very painful physically, clearly, but also psychologically, it was just a lot. And it took me many days to even look at what was left over my leg. I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, yeah, that had to have been, I mean, especially for somebody who is active and sports oriented and, you know, that was a big part of your life to lose a limb or part of a limb. I mean, I can't even imagine what your headspace was like at that time. I think it was easier for me, you know, in, in some respects, as much as I kind of laugh at the media circus that it was, it was probably kind of good for me because it was a good distraction. It was kind of an easy way to, um, like kind of play hostess, if you will, in the hospital bed when people were coming in and all these agencies and I was feeling, oh my gosh, like I, I feel so much gratitude for all the support that I'm getting. Like I really should be awake or put on some lip gloss for this next visitor, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Wait, I gotta do my hair and my makeup. <laughs> yeah. And then you'd be seriously like pressing that friggin' button, the red button when you're on like morphine drips and stuff and, and you're just desperate for that next fix of, of medication to try to like comfort you somewhat in this crazy pain that you just couldn't control. Yeah. So it was maybe good in, in hindsight, right? Like at the time, you just don't really know you're just going through the motions, but it was probably a good thing for me personally, because I am a social person. And I think it did kind of help me deal with some of that craziness at the start. So when did you make up your mind that uh, you weren't going to let that stop you? And that you were going to go back to work? Well, the jury's out on that. My mom thinks that I was, you know, hell bent on doing it right from in the hospital and I may well have been, but I don't know that realistically and practically I, I really believed that. So I may have been like, rah, 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 I'm going to go back to work, but I don't know that I actually believed it until quite a bit later. But what I will say is I, there was a police officer who had lost his leg to cancer three months prior to me losing mine. And before I'd really looked at what was left over of my leg, someone had arranged for him to visit me in the intensive care. And I'll never forget him coming in. And he was so, uh, he was just, he had a big personality and just big smile. And he came in with those old school tearaway pants, you know, the ones uh -huh. you're too young. You wouldn't know. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm familiar with those pants. <laughs> I, I was a basketball player, so I wore a lot of those pants over the years. Yeah, you would have then. <laughs> Yeah. Well, he came in with a pair of those and he was hell bent on going back to work. And in order to go back to work, he had been told that he had to do the pair test, which is the RCMP's physical obstacle course type test. That's, that was their standard still is, mm -hmm. um, in order to get into training, but then also you had to do it in a better time to leave training. Right. 
Okay. So he, he was hell bent on doing that. So he says, Laura, you know, we're going to do this. And he, I remember him taking his you know, tearaway pants and pulling them off. And I remember thinking mm, like, I kind of want to look, but I'm really, <laughs> really hesitant. Cause I really did not want to see what my yeah. future was. It was a lot. It was a lot. So it was his fault actually, but uh -huh. um, yeah, I'll just blame him. Uh, if he was going to do it, then clearly I had to do it too. And exactly. so that's, that's, yeah, I, but there were a lot of dark times next. So while I can kind of say that he did inspire me immensely and, and I, and I in fact talk about him in my book because it was highly inspirational, but it was overwhelming. It was, it was a lot of things, a lot of emotions kind of coming up right then. But I think that once I was released from the hospital and you're in such a, an enclosed environment, it's very controlled. Um, then you get out into the real world and you start seeing some of the obstacles and how realistically you're going to navigate your life as an amputee in the world. And it was mm -hmm. really, really, really overwhelming. And uh, that's when I, I really sunk low. And that's the darkest time came in. Um, I was, I went home to see my parents for a bit of an early, you know, kind of Christmas and I stayed there through the holidays. And then in January, I moved back to Vancouver to start rehab. And my mom was coming out to live with me to be my full-time caregiver because I was completely incapable of looking after myself. And I remember we pulled up to the condo that had been rented for me and I hadn't seen it, nor had she pulled up to the condo and we're looking for the, and all of a sudden I see that there's 37 steps up to my front door. I got one leg. Somebody dropped the ball. Yeah. So that was very overwhelming. So I take my crutches and I slowly get up the mossy kind of wooden stairs because it's all slippery and it's wet in Vancouver in the winter. And mm -hmm. so I finally get up the 37 steps to the front door and I go into this furnished apartment and nothing's mine, of course. And I just, it felt very foreign and unfamiliar. And I was in the kitchen and I glance up and there's a giant extra wide full length mirror in the kitchen. And I saw this person, like this pale person with one leg, like standing there. And, and I just, I didn't even recognize myself. Like it was just, it was, it was a lot. And I had a giant meltdown and I threw my crutches and I said every curse word known to mankind multiple times and just bawled in a heap on the floor. And I just said to mom, like, I just, I just don't know. I don't, I don't know what's going to become of me. <laughs> like it was awful. I felt shafted. I was bitter. I was angry. I was hurting. Like I was in so much pain on every level and it was just it was just so much to see myself in this reflection because it just looked like a stranger yeah i mean you had every right to feel the feelings that you were feeling mm -hmm. i mean that's for sure so i think <laughs> after that i i really i sunk low like my my physical pain was definitely not being controlled properly psychological pain was just not being controlled properly either um I was very dependent, you know, you go from being this independent athletic, you know, person. And now suddenly you can't even get into the shower without, you know, I, I would crawl to the bathroom on my knees. Like it was just so humbling on every level and you lose all sense of dignity. You can't, when I was in the hospital, I mean, I fainted when I finally was able to get enough strength to, to get myself to the bathroom, I'm off a catheter and all that. And I finally get myself to the bathroom and I faint on the toilet. And like, you know, it's just, there's just so many things that were so heavy. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it was January. The weather was gr gross. I was dealing with all the things that I just talked about. And I just, I just had no hope. And I really sunk deep, dark 
depression um, really hit me. And I just, I kept, all I kept thinking was I'm angry. Like I, I wanted to die. Like, why didn't I die that day? Like I, I, I should have died and I, I want to die. I just, I, I don't, I don't deserve to live. Like this is no life for anybody. Um, and so I was bitter. I was very, very angry at the world at, at my mom. I took it out on her because she was the person that was there. And I, I, I will always feel badly about that, but I just, I couldn't get out of myself enough because I just, I had no control over anything in my life and it was a lot. So what I found myself doing was kind of self-medicating. And I think it was a feeble attempt to try to almost overdose, but I, I didn't have the, the, I guess the intention to really kill myself, but I kind of was making these lame kind of feeble attempts to, to, to just slip away. Like I, right. I, I remember lying there in my bed so many times thinking, well, I don't have a gun anymore, so I can't kill myself. And I wouldn't want to, after what I'd just been through, like, you know, I don't have the physical abilities to hang myself or something. Like, I just remember thinking all of the different ways that, that people, and I just, I'm, I, I hate that I thought that way, but I also am almost grateful in some ways that I did feel that low because I recognize now how much more joy the high moments bring me, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I get it. Uh, I get it 100%. So it's that, uh, especially that just trying to numb everything and slip away and not be there anymore. Yeah. You know? And you just, you don't want to cause pain to the people who are already suffering too, because while I was so hyper-focused on my own shit and my own suffering, lots of the people around me were suffering too, but I, I wasn't <laughs> yeah. really, you know, I wasn't thinking of them then I was thinking just of me. Well, and that's the thing is whenever you get into that, that spot and that mindset, that's what happens is, you know, it's a, sounds kind of shitty to say, but it's very egocentric and very much, uh, selfish, but you, you know? can't not but be you that can't, way. Yeah. You can't help it. Um, that's what suffering is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, God, that just sucks big time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have, I don't have better words to say for that. <laughs> and I mean, people say like, why didn't, what, like, what, what do you think stopped you? And I just, I don't, I don't know. I didn't have some big, you know, revelation that said, oh, Lord, I didn't have any, you know, deep philosophical moments to say that this is what was the turning point. I just didn't have any of that. I definitely self-medicated a lot. I would show up at my physiotherapy and my physiotherapist would say, you need to go home. You're not in any shape to be out and about. And, um, but I just, I just didn't have the capacity and I guess I didn't have the will, thank God. That, that's all I can really say. But I, what I can say that I learned from that is that I understand that despair now. And I never did before, but I sure do now. Yeah. So what finally, like how long did all that last before you got your shit together? I think I'm, I'm a very, I'm a people pleaser and I'm a rulesy person. And so I think for me, I was very fortunate that the expectation was that I would be at physio every day. And so having that accountability, I know for me was critical. Um, because even though I was on my own, like my mom was there for the first while, but then as time went on, she, she left. 
Um, but the expectation was that I would be there every single day. So I was expected and then being accountable to somebody weighs on me. That's, that's my responsibility. I can't let other people down. That's just how my character is. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in and of itself was so significant, that routine, that having to be somewhere at a certain time, it kind of gave me something in my schedule to focus on. And so I, it was, it was long. I remember, um, because there were so many healing issues with my stump and I had to go in for a few more procedures, even after I was initially released from the hospital, I couldn't, um, I didn't have enough healing to be able to get a prosthetic leg. And that part was really discouraging because I felt like I was surrounded by all these people who are making all this progress and everybody's moving much more quickly than me. And yet I can't even get a leg. Like it just, it felt like it was just another layer of being shafted kind of thing. Like what, like I, how long am I gonna have to wait? And I'd go into physio and I would do my stupid range of motion exercises. And I would do like my upper body stuff. And one day during that phase, I remember, um, I, once I was getting way more you know, physically capable, I crutched 20 blocks just to prove that I could, because I didn't have any tangible goals that I could really achieve other than things like that. Like I couldn't, I wasn't learning how to really walk yet because I didn't have a prosthetic and stuff. So for me, putting those weird little um, intentions on the day gave me something to, to measure. Yeah. Something so to strive, was, a goal, something to strive for, something to look yeah. forward to. And yeah, yeah. no, I get, I get that. And I felt like, I think to me, um, it, it showed if I wasn't grinding every friggin' day, then clearly I wasn't committed. So are you just lazy and unmotivated or are you grinding it out? And are you proving to yourself and everybody else that you really want this? And so I would say I was definitely in that, that down phase for several weeks and it was really gradual, my sort of coming out of it. Um, but it also kind of coincided with getting a leg and sort of slowly, slowly regaining that independence because the day that I actually got my very first prosthetic leg, it was like, ah, and I was scheduled, <laughs> I was scheduled to be on a talk show that day back to my community minded behavior and oh, how I was yeah. always doing that. Yeah. It's um, uh, it's almost like, you know, cops and firemen put everybody else first and yeah. put their own needs last. Yeah. That's crazy. I wish somebody would point that out. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We, we, we serve and we sacrifice and lots of times it's to our own detriment. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, yep. So one day I, I was scheduled to be on this talk show and I was really excited, but I mean, I was still on crutches. I didn't have, I was practicing with a leg at physio, but I was not to be trusted to take the leg off campus, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, so she would let me have it and then she would make me put it on the shelf and I'd have to go home on my crutches and my wheelchair and stuff. And, um, this day when I was going to the, the show, the, sh the production crew from this talk show that I was going on had sent a car for me and my mom to go on to transport me down to this show. And that was the day that my physio let me take it home with me. It was like this giant, yay. Like I was so excited, like the smile, I couldn't even contain it. I was so excited to show it off on that talk show that day. Cause I just wanted the world to see my new equipment. So that was pretty exciting. Well, I can, I mean, I would assume that it gave you a, another level of independence over, oh. over crutches. Yeah. The, the liberation, so. right? Like that, that feeling of, okay, I, there is some stuff like I can get to places I can just be, yeah, slightly more independent. And it just, it symbolized a lot. It symbolized the future 
and I, something I hadn't been able to really do. So um, as I started doing better with my leg, I started to back to, yeah, I'd have lots of these challenges that I would do to myself. Like I would make myself go up the whole flight of stairs, like leading with my prosthetic leg every step to build that strength and to get that balance and all these things. So I would do these challenges. I still do them like all the time. I'm doing that when I'm in the kitchen, I'm doing weird little things and no one else would really know that I'm doing it, but I'm really conscious about how I shift my weight and, and how much time I spend sort of with, you know, one hip jutted out and the other hip jutted out, that kind of stuff. So in those early months and weeks, I started to slowly regain my balance. And then once you, you know, starting to walk a little bit and then I wanted to walk without a limp and then it was like, well, could I, run? Could I roller, rollerblade? Could I skate? Like, could I do all the swim? Like all those activities that I was, I wasn't able to do like, but every single activity had to be broken down individually. Mm -hmm. And it was an eye opener. Cause I didn't realize that I would have to put so much effort into doing one type of thing. Like I kind of thought, you know, when you get injured, you do your rehab and then you're able to do all the things that you could do before. And that was a yeah. really naive way of looking at it. Cause that was sure not the case. Um, so I had to break down all the things. And so during the rehab process, we had taken that pair test, that physical test, and we had broken it down into all the things, all the subparts of it to be like, okay, well, you got to, it's like a figure eight kind of test and then like a running test, but then you jump a couple different obstacles and you have to leap a vault and you have to go up and down a set of stairs and you have to lie down and then get back up. And there's all kinds of different, like when you break it right down, it's, mm -hmm. it's a lot of different movements. And so in order to be efficient and technically sound at doing that test, for me, I had to break it down into all the individual parts. And so that's what we did. We would replicate it in the physio environment and try to work on each thing to do each movement as well as, as I could. So what kind of support were you getting from the department? Like, were they supportive of you coming back or did they set a time frame on you? And like, how did that process work? The beginning was really difficult. And I, I think that I give the whole process and the people involved some grace now. At the time, I didn't. At the time, I was very angry. <laughs> I was very upset. I was kind of fighty. Um, um, I'm sensing a theme here, Lori. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like when I, I'm very um, morally driven. And I, when I feel like I've been failed on certain things, then I might turtle for a bit, but I always come out swinging, always. And I just can't really put a time frame on it, but I always will. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a good thing. It's worked sometimes in my favor, but it's not always, not always <laughs> um, advisable. But it was hard. And I think it was, it was new for everybody then too. Right. But I didn't see that at the time. I mean, I'm from a small Northern community. I know like, you know, very few people in this organization. Now mm -hmm. I'm in Vancouver. I don't know anybody. There's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. here. I, I don't know. I don't have a frame of reference for how processes work in the bigger scheme of, of this organization. That's humongous. Um, so I, it was very overwhelming. And I felt like things should have fallen into place. Like I should have had answers about benefits and salary and who's paying my rent while I'm living in Vancouver, like just all these little things. Yeah. But, but in their defense, well, things like that didn't really happen that often. And every time they do, there are different dynamics and different factors and different people involved too. So um, it was very difficult to, to find 
um, some of the actual support, like everybody's saying they support me, but when it comes right down to it, I couldn't get a lot of answers and it was very mm. frustrating for my family and for myself. So, um, I, I eventually did get all the answers, but I think, and I, I, I'd like to think that God forbid something like that were to happen now, I think it would be a lot more streamlined because um, of the, well, the, the internet too, like just all the things, there were lots of factors that were in at play in 1998 that um, wouldn't necessarily be the same in 2022. So um, the support has wavered over time for sure. But I think that the idea of doing the pair, this test was always out there. Like I had to do that. And so I think that once the initial media interest, all that kind of died down, I think that fed into my darkness too, right? Like I was a center of attention for a long time and not that I care about that. It was just that I was, I had um, a lot of things to keep me busy. And then suddenly that part kind of goes away. Everyone gets back to their regular lives. And then now you're dealing with the, the shittiness and the realities of what your future is going to be. You feel very alone, very isolated, very psychologically stressed very physically stressed, um, the pain, like just all that kind of stuff just really was like digging a hole and pulling in the dirt on top, right? Like it just, everything worked against me in that timing. And so I really didn't reach out for help. I mean, I had my, my people, my, my, my family, so my closest friends, that kind of stuff. But once I was out of the public eye, I was really left to my own devices. And so I think that I really didn't have a ton of interaction with some of the decision makers until mm-hmm. um, until it got closer to the time. So in June, so I got shot at the end of November. And in June, I had a really poorly fitting prosthetic, but I was so done with physio. Like I just, I, to me, it was, it had felt like way longer while it was only, you know, yeah, seven that's to not, eight. Yeah, that's you know, not a very long time to I mean, like you said, you're talking about doing, you know, tasks and having to break them down and relearn individual tasks. That's not a long time. No, but when you're obsessed, um, there is that. (laughs) (laughs) And so in in June, I felt like I I just can't live. I don't want to be in Vancouver anymore. I felt like everything that had been so wrongfully taken from me, I got to like regain this. So I went to the gym. My mom um, and my physiotherapist were the only two in the gym with me. And it started going around that the leg was not doing well. It, it was just, it was just a bad setup. I, I really shouldn't have done it, but I did it. That's what I thought. I thought if I passed the test, then at least I could put that whole chapter of my life behind me as well. And as I was going around one of the obstacles, I kind of was trying to jump this stupid, just like a hockey stick, essentially on two pylons. Like it's like knee height. It's so small. Yeah. And I tripped over it and the, stick felt like it made this giant echoey noise hitting the gym floor and it just felt like the reverberation was just so profound and significant and it just it just was exaggerated beyond and I fell to a heap on the floor and I just bawled and I kind of a theme again through my leg and said (laughs) fuck this I'm never coming back I can't do this I bawled like I just thought like this is way too much like I I can't do it and I left that gym saying not happening. I'm done. I can't, I have to focus on something else. Policing is not going to be part of my future. I just, I got to refocus because this is not healthy for, for me. And, uh, 
so strategized about that a little bit the next week, like what next, like, where do I go from here? And slowly my physiotherapist who is much more than a physiotherapist. She's a psychologist and a counselor and a, oh my God, she's everything, a teacher, um, coach, all kinds of things. And she slowly, without really me really knowing, encouraged me to go back. And so in July, I had a much better fitting leg. She and I just by ourselves went back to the gym, thought that we were going to just be doing this test as a practice run. And she was videotaping it because that's what we did all the time. We videotaped everything so that we could break everything down and we could analyze it to death and try to figure out how we could do better. So that's uh, yeah, that is obsession. Yes. I mean, it's great because um, I think it's very valuable because you get to look at yourself from an outside you know, an outside perspective so you can see how everything looks and, you know, you can't do that whenever you're in the moment. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to do it that way. Well, I mean, it was all for an amputee. It's about foot placement. It's about body placement. It's about just, I mean, the, the smallest adjustment to my prosthetic can have a really big impact on the rest of my body. It's just, it's been very incredible um, to, to learn about that. So we did the test that day and, and I, uh, Oh, you froze. We finished it. And as I was done, I thought, geez, you know, that was, that was pretty fucking good. Like, Oh, sorry. Am I good now? Uh, yeah, you're good now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. I, in so this day in July, like I went back, we did the test. And as I was kind of coming around the fourth or fifth lap, I was thinking, geez, you know, this is, this is pretty good. Like, I think, I think this is, I think I can do this test. We got done and at the end we were like, wow, that was pretty good. And so we submitted the video to the powers that be. And I waited, I don't know how long, but a, a couple of weeks, I think. And finally got the news that, yeah, that was good enough. And I had the authorization to go back to work. So I, um, I was absolutely exhilarated. I was thrilled beyond belief. And um, that was everything that I'd been working for. And while it doesn't seem long when you're living it day in, day out, minute after minute, like it, it, it is a lot. And so the problem was, is that once they said, yep, stamp of approval, you did that physical piece. Now all of a sudden they wanted me to do driving because it's my right leg. So they wanted me to do police driving. They wanted me to do the physical, um, it's like a use of force computerized simulator uh, thing that they used back then to, it was kind of like a computerized scenario that mm -hmm. would be run based on your responses and use of force. And so I did that and I had to do shooting, had to go to the range and do my shooting. And then I had to go to a psychologist. So I had these four new roadblocks up against me and I was furious. Like I, I thought for sure they wanted me to fail. Like I thought you said for the last, you know, eight months, you got to do the pair. And so then I hide and I kind of go into like grind mode. And then I surface after all this time and I'm like, Hey, by the way, I did the pair. And now all of a sudden they're like, Whoa, wait a minute. Now you got to do these other four things. And I was so mad. So true to form, I, I, I did all those things. So it took me from, I don't know, mid July, let's say till, um, through till September, I guess, to get all those things knocked off. So I got a psychologist to give me approval. I had had to reset my driver's license, my regular driver's license. And then I went and did all the police driving tests as well. I did my computerized simulations and I went to the range because I had already been to the range too, because I wasn't sure how it would be with 
guns and pistols and shotguns and all that stuff like how would that uh, impact me and so i'd already been to the range before but then i went and did my shooting qualifications and passed all that and i finally on october 4th of 1999 like 10 months later went back to work and so it was kind of an unprecedented um return to work i was the first uh you know would that we we think possibly um it was definitely unprecedented nobody had returned to full unrestricted duties within artificial leg in our organization at that time so that was pretty incredible you can clap now it, it's, <laughs> i yeah wow in less than a year i mean that number one that's inspiring of you know and the ups and the downs and being honest about it of yes i was low but then i just got to work and then it sucked and i wanted to quit but then i just got to work and i, I mean think one I, of the things though that's important too jeremy is that though one thing that i would say is like it 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 was the, all those things that you just said but it's also been good and then it's gotten bad again and then it's been good and so i think that's one mm -hmm. of the messages that i think you and i are trying to share with people is that it's always like this like it's never just like this ever. oh yeah you don't just hit a low and then go like this and it, you'd be foolish and naive to think that it did oh yeah the, the only easy day was yesterday to steal a line from a different organization <laughs> but yeah I, and i and i preach this or i feel like i preach this all the time with um you know mental health and stuff is the the thing is to not quit you know you have to keep trying because not every person is going to respond the same to one type of you know therapy option you know there's you know talk therapy emdr neurofeedback there's just i mean the list goes on and on and on of different types of mental health help and therapy practices and procedures and what may work for you may not work for me but you got to keep trying and don't be afraid to go okay well i'm not getting along with this therapist or this therapist i don't feel like is helping me or whatever don't be afraid to try another one out exactly i i had to go through a lot of that myself um when when i first moved to the place that i live now i started i was struggling i was getting divorced i was having a lot of issues with my my stump and circulation problems and things like that anyways i reached out to somebody and and I had gone to see her probably four or six times and she was still calling me Julie. My name's Lori. And I felt like if you can't even get my name straight, then what kinds of details are you actually retaining about my story and what I'm needing help with? And I remember in, in that really dark time that I was talking about, like right after my amputation, like I was at the lowest of lows and I reached out to somebody who had come highly recommended to me and I would take a taxi to the office and I was bawling the whole way there because that's all I did, a ball, ball, like all day long. That's what I did. I just, I was so sad and so hopeless and I would show up there and that person would be answering the door for like letting the dog out to go to the bathroom and oh, forgotten kids lunch and oh, there's a delivery at the door. Like it was just, and then I would leave in a taxi again, bawling, feeling even worse than I did when I arrived there. And I thought, what am I doing? I'm spending all this time so focused on okay i've got an appointment now nah, tuesday at two and i would think okay i'm gonna finally like maybe get some help and get some perspective and like try to make some progress and i would leave feeling worse and it was just absolutely devastating oh. put yourself out there and just feel even yeah worse well and yeah especially with having 
you know, the personality type of someone that goes into one of these career fields, I mean, that's the, one of the biggest slaps in the face is, you know, you're actually being vulnerable and seeking to get some kind of help and they can't take the time. And, you know, that's why we talk a lot about cultural, cultural competency of having a a therapist or a counselor that knows about the career field, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, they have to be a former cop or a former firefighter or something like that, but they have to be able to understand like just the personality types of the people that go into those fields. Yeah. And the pressures the of these kinds base, of jobs. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the, the bottom, the minimum standard, you know, and then they need to know about, you know, the type of calls that we run and the things that can happen to us because it's not the same as the general population. Agreed. And so, so delays in treatment are just absolutely unacceptable. And I think in every yeah. area we're, we're all facing that we just, we don't have access in the timely fashion to the yeah. appropriate kind of help. And that part is, is it's really got to change. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you've got an idea of how to change it, uh, I'm all ears. Um, and I, c- I can tell you from personal experience, you know, my wife is a counselor and her whole practice is built around firefighters, cops, and veterans. And she's booked out until January. And she, I mean, that was booked last month. So she's probably booked out till February. Now, I don't know. But it's, there's not enough therapists just in general. And then whenever you have the population that we have, and you need therapists that specialize in that, they're just, they're few and far between. And, the, and to make matters even worse is a lot of the times we don't do anything proactively, at least on the fire side. We're always reactive to everything. You know, we get a call and then we go, you know, it's not like you know, we think, okay, a fire is going to start here. So we're going to go and, you know, be there before it starts, you know, that just doesn't happen. And we do the same thing with our mental health. We wait until the wheels are falling off and it's a big ass dumpster dumpster fire on, you know, on top of a shit show. And then we're like, okay, I need help now. Or we get forced to go get help. So. Yeah. It's a, it's a struggle to find that competent help. You're right. And I think that's why, Back when I was in physio in those months, I was in a, a little support group and it was very small. It was just two other people and myself, and we were all facing quite different. We all were amputees, but different other factors in our situations. And I remember kind of at the start thinking, uh, I don't really know, like, what would I have in common with them? Cause we're all facing different kind of paths. But what I did find out really quickly was just storytelling was a connection that I desperately needed. And I really think that you're providing that here. This is another way of doing that, right? Like, I'm not saying we're we're not, neither of us are out here trying to profess to be counselors or professionals in any way. It's just having another platform and another way to get a message out saying you're not alone, that there is help out there, that many, many other people have experienced the same things and come out on the other side. Um, And something that we say might might tweak with somebody else and be like, oh, I haven't thought about trying that. Like you mentioned EMDR. I don't know. Maybe there's some listener who says, oh, I don't really know what that is. I'm going to Google it up right now. Like you just never, never know. And I think that's what's really important about the power of storytelling and, and sharing our own lived experiences. That's got such tremendous impact um, for, for so many people. Well, absolutely. And, you know, that's why we started um, the guys that started the podcast with me 
that's the whole reason we did it is because, you know, we've all been through our own thing and each one of them was different, but all kind of, you know, they kind of overlapped with a lot of things, but at any point in time, all of us felt alone. Like we're the only person going through this and you know, what, what's going on? Like, where's the, where's the brotherhood? Where's the camaraderie? And like, I, you know, why am I the only one that feels this way? Well, Well, in reality, you're not, you know, I mean, and to be able to come out and say that and for it to be okay to say that, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Again, another, uh, another cliche line, but it's so true. You know, we all have things that we deal with and, you know, it's a, it's a big sign of strength to go, to be self-aware enough to go, okay, things aren't going right right now. Let's figure it out. If I need, you know, to go see a therapist or if I need to talk to a peer and maybe that's all it is, is I just need to sit down with a buddy or somebody who's in the same career field or an adjacent one and, you know, just kind of talk and hash things out and gain a different perspective sometimes that works and then sometimes you let stuff boil up or build up too long where you need that professional help that outside perspective but to get more people to acknowledge it and talk about it and say look this is where i was at this is what happened to me this is what i did and this is where i'm at now there's so much benefit in that and i wish i wish more people would come forward and talk about that and thankfully a lot more people are but the stigma is still there and it's still real so i think what i realize i don't know if you feel kind of similar i think i think you do i think you're you're saying exactly what i'm about to say too and it's just that i know that when i was first asked to give a presentation and back in 2000, like shortly after I'd gone back to work and it was kind of like, rah, 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 look what you can do. Like you can overcome adversity and like, look at, you know, a one-legged cop here and look what you did. Like <laughs> really that's how I, you know. Yeah. Dance pony. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I went, I, when I was prepping for this presentation, I thought I, I have no idea what, like, what do I tell them? Because what I felt like while the end result at that point, the end result was me going back to work successfully. Yes. However, I had just spent the last you know, 12 months in complete and utter, well, many of them in complete and utter darkness. And I thought, well, like, what kind of a message is that to go out in front of a group of people and somehow be like, yeah, it was shit, 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 more shit. And then all of a sudden I went back to work like, yay. Like, I just did not really understand what they would want to know from me. However, mm-hmm. what I realized quickly was that that day I had spent all this time, like, um, it was it was in the community that I was from, and so everybody knew me, and so I selected these really nice dress pants, and I was wearing my high heel leg. I was all very excited about that, and I looked very <laughs> professional. And so I go in and I talk about it, and the next thing you know, in the question and answer period, really they wanted to see the leg too. Like there were a lot of questions around that, which I hadn't anticipated. Like I, I thought that I need to be up there and be all professional, and next thing you know, I'm half disrobed, showing them my leg in this like show and tell thing. But what I realized, it was a big, big takeaway for me. And what I realized was that there are so many people in that audience who connected with me. And it wasn't because obviously no one had been shot in that audience. It wasn't that. Nobody needed to be shot or have some amputation or some major physical issue. It was the emotion. 
And that's really what I feel strongly about here, like 24 years later, where it's not the circumstances that necessarily bind us together. It's the emotion that those circumstances, the loss, the grief, the anger, the bottle, body betrayal, the, all those things, we've all experienced that just doesn't really matter how they've arrived in our lives. It's how, mm -hmm. you know, the diff they're manifested differently for everybody, but we've all experienced those things. So while for me, it might be this, it might be, I don't know, death in your family, divorce. Like, I don't know what all the circumstances are, but that part, those details really don't matter. The things that bring us together, emotion. Yeah. No, I agree. That's why 100%. we need to keep sharing our, our stories and our lived experiences, right? Oh, absolutely. And keep, you know, and the other important part of it, I think, is showing the after that it's okay to have those dark times and to go through that, those emotions, those are, that's just part of the human experience to, you know, use another cliche. I love cliches today, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's normal to feel happy or sad or angry or, you know, betrayed or just name the emotion. It, there's a name for it because it's normal. That's what happens. And it's okay, but you can't stay in it. You know, that's, that's where you talk about the, the growth aspect of it, of this is what I learned coming through this. Or, and these are, this is where I'm at now, you know, and if you can take those lessons and pass them on your, your money ahead, another yeah. cliche. <laughs> well, if we're going to start like value added and all, we're going to have all kinds of cliches, but we, but we're all going to have a setbacks too. Right. Right. But experience will show us that we've had some very, very dark times, some really traumatic, upsetting, you know, all the things we've experienced all that, but uh, to do another cliche, I've, you know, for the ones called, um, experience will show that hundred percent of the time I've gotten through those. I've missed, I missed that. Up. I messed that up, but you know yeah, what I'm saying? Well, like yeah, history will enough. show and that's what resilience is, right? Like is exactly. you, you prove to yourself from lived experience that, Hey, you know what? I've made it through that. And I know that with some time and giving myself some kindness and some grace and reaching out for some help and sharing my story and, and doing all the things that I know I need to do using the tools that are in my tool basket. There's a cliche, mm -hmm. um, you know, those kinds of things, but it's true. It, it's proof that I have succeeded and you have too, but it's not always going to be an upward trajectory. It's going to be up and down and all around. And that's just life. Yeah. That's life peaks and valleys. Yeah. So in, enjoy the highs and know that the lows will pass. Yeah. And it, you know, and I think it's a lot of people will kind of, it's very easy whenever you're in those lows to not really see that you know, that, oh, this is, it's so bad. It's never been this bad before. Yeah. Yeah, it has. Yeah. You know, because you're still here. And well, yeah. One of the things that I always say too, is um, someone said it to me yesterday, uh, something about how, well, I would never profess to know what it's like to, you know, um, be an amputee. Like I could never compare my situation with yours. And I'm like, no, you got to stop that. Like, I hate when people do that. There's no continuum. Um, somebody used the phrase, uh, was on a, with a military vet recently. I hadn't heard it before. And he called it the trauma Olympics. 
And, um, (laughs) and and I'm like, that was a great phrase. I had never heard it before, but the way I worded in my book is that there's no continuum about like, what's the worst and what's the least bad. And like, where do I land on this continuum? Right. Because Mm -hmm. I'm not going to come on here and be, um, well, I'm in the middle while Jeremy, I'm, you know, he's only like halfway to the middle. Like he's kind of like his circumstances are like, we can't judge that stuff. It's foolish. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I like to uh, use the, the kind of analogy of music, right? Everybody's musical taste is their own. There's, you can't say that your taste in music is better than mine or mine is better than yours because music is an intensely personal thing. And maybe that's just the way that I view it, you know, and it's the same thing with any type of trauma. It's, it's yours. And it's not for me to say, or anybody else to say, you know, how that affects you or, if it's mine is worse than yours or yours is worse than mine. The, um, the inpatient program that I went to, um, was for firefighters, cops, and veterans. And one of my good friends that I made while I was in there and we still talk and hang out and stuff, he was, you know, in the army and the special forces and, you know, 18 years of that stuff will kind of mess you up a little bit. And so, we're sitting next to each other and they, they called us the angry corner. So yeah, that's the, the therapist that was there. He was, he had a little nickname for us and we were, (laughs) we were, um, but you know, we got to have a lot of good conversations and, you know, for me, it was like, oh man, you know, I haven't done X, Y, or Z, or I haven't seen this or that. And you've done all those things. And so, you know, I I can't, you know, what am I complaining about? And then his thing was, he would say the exact same thing to me of, I don't know how you do what you do of going in like, cause I've been in the fire service as long as he was in the military. And so it's like the things that you saw on, you know, a daily basis and you're in the, the area all the time like it's the city that you live in or the neighborhood you live in even that you're serving and you drive by those houses every day and all that stuff. He goes, all the things that happened to me were halfway across the world. He goes, I don't have to be reminded of those places all the time. He goes, I don't know how you do that. And I was like, well, I mean, I guess when you put it that way, I see your point of view. I see my point of view. So maybe it is just, we have two different points of views and Landed us both in the same place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, years ago I, I worked, I I had um I worked with some guys with the military as well when we were planning for the 2010 um Olympics and Paralympics. We were doing security stuff out here. And so um that was a comment very similar to what your military friend said. He said, you know, I find it really hard to wrap my head around. He said, when we go into theater or deployed somewhere, we know exactly kind of who our enemies are. Like we know mm-hmm. who's on our side, and who's not. And then we come back home and, and that's where this, this is, we're not in that same mindset. Whereas he said, you never know if it's your neighbor or your postman or somebody yeah. just, you know, that you're going to meet at the store who, who hates you and is against you. And I had never thought about it like that. So it's saying the exact same thing. And it was quite an eye-opening um, conversation to, to really think about it like that. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And I don't think a lot of us really put a whole lot of thought into that. I think we just take it like, 
oh, well, this is just our career and this is just what it's like. I mean, for police officers, police officers to be hyper vigilant all the time because it is and they don't even realize that they're doing it. Yeah. You know, it, you go to a go out to a restaurant or something or you have even have them over to your house and they sit where they can see the door. Yeah. You know, it's like, OK, I get that because, you know. I wanted that seat because I want to see the door and I want to know where all the exits are. And I want to know, you know, so yeah, it's, uh, it's I think that, um, you know, hopefully we're doing better. I know we are in, in on both of our worlds of, of work and, and things. I think we're doing a lot better about teaching the young people about resiliency and, and that all the signs and that for post-traumatic stress and things, because I, I do know like post-traumatic stress for me was, it was just not a phrase that was used. I really wasn't um, familiar with it, I guess. And so uh, when I was shot in 1998, I don't remember that phrase really coming up. And then in 2003, uh, because I'm federal, I, I'm covered by, I've got some coverage through the Veterans Affairs side in, in Canada as well. And um, a case manager person had come to my house. And at that time, I was newly married. I was pregnant with my first child. I uh, had moved into a fairly new house. Like things were on the surface going very very well but I had this visit at home from a case manager and talked about a, a variety of different things and i didn't like that because i didn't like people in my house kind of back to what you were just saying like i, I yeah. didn't want people in my space this is my safe haven i don't want anybody in here but i felt like i had to because of the coverage that i had through my benefits so i did that next thing you know at the very end of the the, the meeting i remember him saying gently to me have you ever thought about you know, do, do you think that you might have post-traumatic stress? Have you ever looked into that? And I, I never even heard of it. So I remember after he left thinking, oh, and so I went to check it out and check the computer and did some of those self, I don't know, quiz things that you do. Mm -hmm. You know, do you, are you, do you have nightmares? Do you have sleep issues? Are you hypervigilant? Are you jumpy? Like all these different things. <laughs> and like every single one was yes. And I thought, okay, that's bullshit. I'll go to another quiz because this one will say that I don't. And every yeah. single one of course came back. So I was thinking, <laughs> oh shit. But when I went to get counseling and actually got officially diagnosed, it was weird because it was kind of this double-edged sword. Like I was grateful because I had an official medical diagnosis. So I felt like if I had that, then it felt like it was more legitimate or something. And, and it was, you know, there was a category for that. So then at least if there's a, a name for it, then there's gotta be a fix for it. Right. Um, but it was also scary as hell because you're thinking, oh my God, what if work finds out? Am I gonna get fired? Or are they gonna say, oh my God, she's weak. She's, you know, not capable, all those things. So that was a whole other beast in and of itself scary, scary times. But I think we're doing better now because of how far we've come in the last 20 years, right? To, to sort of train and help our younger people build some of those skills and develop awareness about what to look for, hopefully. Yeah, but I think the awareness is definitely up. And I mean, hopefully the resilience is being built. Um, I think resilience only yeah. comes with dealing with shit though, right? And yeah. that only comes with life experience. Exactly. Can't really um, teach it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just kind of one of those things that just, it happens on its own. And because, um, you know, we've talked about that and of how do we prepare uh, new firefighters, right? For seeing the things that they're going to see. And I've talked to a bunch of people. I've talked to therapists. I've talked to other firefighters. I've talked to you know, cops and counselors and everybody. 
And I, I still haven't come up with a great answer. It seems like, you know, you can tell somebody what they're going to see, but until, or what they're going to experience, but until they experience it for themselves, I don't think there's a, a real understanding. And I'll, and I have a pretty good story about that. Um, we had uh, Rob Sanderson on the podcast. Um, he runs an organization called Swell, which is Surf Waves Enjoy Life. And he came on and he talked to us about the organization. They take uh, cops and firemen and veterans surfing. And they use it as kind of like a, a retreat, a getaway. You know, there's uh, some light mental health stuff that gets talked about. And there's a chaplain there. And um, so he, he talked about it. And I was like, okay, that sounds really cool. But um, yeah, we're in the middle of the country and there's no surfing anywhere close. He goes, <laughs> I, he goes I know, I know. He goes, we, we do, it's an all expense paid trip. We go to California or you know, wherever. And that's how we do it. And I was like, okay, cool. So he calls me a little while later and he's like, Hey, I want to take you guys out. You know, I want you guys to come on a swell trip. And I was like, all right, cool, man. I've never thought about surfing, but sure. I'll give it a shot. And so, you know, it took us a little while to get it together and actually do it. But we went, uh, two weeks, two weeks ago, I think or maybe a weekend ago. I don't know. It's fairly recently. So there's been a lot going on. Um, but you know, we get to California on a Friday and, um, it just, the, everything started off bad. Three of the guys, their bags didn't make it. So they had to go back to the airport. We were supposed to surf on Friday, but ended up not because of the bag thing. And then we had to get to the, the beach house that they rented for us. Um, to meet with this counselor who was going to come talk to us about breath work and yoga and stretching and all that stuff. So I'm like, okay, you know, this is cool. You know, it was at that point, I'm still thinking, okay, this is more like a vacation really than, you know, and I get it, you know, leave your environment that is causing you the stress, take time and be able to reset. I get it. And then she comes in and she starts talking to us and she's talking about, you know, all these different types of therapies and then goes into the breath, breath work and yoga. And then we go out onto the beach and, you know, we're doing all these things out there and we go back and I'm starting to, my eyes are starting to open up a little bit. And then we go the next day and do the surfing and, you know, paddle out on the board and, you know, you're nervous doing a new thing until, you know, finally you surf a wave or you do whatever that new thing is. And you're like, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm not nervous about it anymore. So by the end of the day, you know, I'm paddling out and just sitting on my board, hanging out and watching the waves and so calm and peaceful. And then we go back to the house and we, you know, cook dinner together and just hang out and talk and talk with the chaplain, do the same thing on Sunday. And, you know, Monday is just kind of the get ready and come back home day. So I get back home or we're flying back on the plane and me and Rob are talking. And I was like, do you know what? I get it now. I get the whole process and what you guys have set up with having the therapist there in a non-threatening way. Yeah. And then having the chaplain there talking about, because the chaplain, this guy's awesome. He's a former SWAT guy retired 
and like he is not like any chaplain you've ever seen i mean he's he's definitely a cop for sure and but he was just straight to the point and just super personable and took a lot of his time out of his weekend just to hang out with us and but anyway so i'm talking to rob on the plane ride back and i'm like this is a really sneaky way to get guys to finally admit to themselves that it's okay to go to therapy isn't it and he goes yeah maybe maybe it is maybe it's not <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not here to tell you what your takeaway is but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was like touche sir well played <laughs> yeah symbolic right so exactly. yeah very effective yeah so That's I, awesome. took, I took the long way around on that story so unfortunately <laughs> but yeah no, and that's good. so but that's the thing is you know going back to that point we were making earlier of it's got to be made clear to everybody that it's okay you know it's okay to to ask for help you know i know that we're supposed to be the ones that oh we're the helpers we don't need any help it's okay everybody needs help at some point absolutely we need to um have so many, you know, periodic check-ins and all that kind of thing too, that I think are more well-established now than they ever were certainly at the start of my career. I'm sure same with you, right? Where every, I don't know, six months or years, whatever it is, you have to go in. And instead of just going in for your regular physical, you got to go in for a head check too. Like it's just, it, those are, those should be standard procedures now. Um, yeah, I agree. They should be. And I think for a lot of police departments, they are, I don't know any fire department that's doing that really yeah that's got to change uh it does we've lost more firefighters um to suicide than line of duty deaths for like i read a white paper that was from a couple of years ago but it was i mean for the past 10 years i think every year we lose more firefighters to suicide than to line of duty deaths and they actually think that the number's probably Prior. twice as high absolutely because I mean, so. and even you think about the reporting, you know, even in the policing world, I think we're getting better at considering the circumstances behind these deaths, but um, people in the past, you know, historically people didn't want to put up their hand to go, yeah, like my brother, sister, father, whatever did this because of mental health, right? It would just be like died suddenly. And then you were left to kind of wonder what that suddenly actually meant. And, and I think some families I've read some more recently, some families going out there and saying, um, like just changing the wording and the messaging and the narrative around the circumstances. And I think that's uh, tragic. Obviously we don't want any more, but uh, I mean, it's, it's yeah. helpful in normalizing it, um, a bit more and not feeling like there's this shame around the fact that, um, the, like the circumstances by which someone died, like, it's just, it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. Well, and I think hopefully what can be taken away from those situations is if you look back and examine, you can say, okay, these were the signs that I missed and I'm not going to miss those signs with the next person. So hopefully it would make us more aware and more vigilant and more willing to have that conversation with our friends. You know, the people on your shift, the people on your crew you know, the officers that you're going on calls with. Yeah. It's an uncomfortable conversation to have. I mean, it really is, but it doesn't have to be, and it doesn't have to be, 
I think sometimes it gets blown up into this whole big thing. Like, I think you do need to be direct about it, but also there's a way to approach it of how you doing and don't, don't accept the, I'm fine. You know, the one or two word answers, that's an indicator. So actually be invested in the conversation and I think you'll get better results that way. I think that point's so important too, because while I'm a big advocate for, for learning how to um, speak up and, and advocate for yourself, really, you know, reach out for help, all those kinds of things. Yes. All that's important. However, we're not capable of that when we're in our really dark times. We just aren't, we, we don't know how to do that, nor do we feel comfortable. I mean, even if we knew where to turn, which most of the time we do know in this day and age, we do know where we could turn. We've got some options. I think that stuff's more uh, readily available than it, it was, but you're just, you don't have that capacity. And I think that's the biggest thing that sometimes I wonder, like when I give that message, when I'm doing my speeches, you know, learning how to advocate for yourself. Yes, that's very important. A hundred percent. But it's also up to our family, friends, colleagues to notice those subtle behavior differences too, because we just don't, we, we just can't sometimes, we just don't have that ability to reach out and, and do that for ourselves when we actually need it the most. And so that's when we need to rely on those other people and their awareness of our, our behaviors in order to, for them to step up and say, mm, uh, you think you might need to, you know, are things okay? And, and, and should we be um, delving into this a little bit differently? Because yeah, they, it's, it's difficult. I think sometimes we feel almost embarrassed or ashamed of that inability to advocate for ourselves when we feel like we know we can, and we take control at work and we are in these sort of positions of power or something yeah. like, or authority, not power necessarily, but positions of authority as then we were weak or, um, not, not, um, just, I don't know, not capable of, of, of doing it when it comes time for ourselves and, and the fact that we need it for our individual sanity. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the job is the last thing that suffers with most of us. We, you know, we're always able to put on, put our game face on and, and go play. Yeah. But, you know, we have a saying on our department, and I'm sure there's plenty of departments that have the same saying of see something, say something, you know, and we use it as like a safety thing for the fire ground, you know, that means from the brand new firefighter all the way up to the senior chief, if there's something going bad on the fire ground and you see it and you recognize it and nobody else has, then speak up and say something. And we need to start applying that to, you know, our mental health department wide, you know, job wide. Yeah. So. Agreed. So. Well, I think that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, oh, wait, before we do closing, before we do closing thoughts, where can people find your book? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so it's called 1033 and officer steps back up. And so of course the 1033 I mentioned means officer down. That's the radio code and the steps back up is to do with obviously my prosthetic leg. Um, you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, yeah, that's the online is probably the easiest way. And I, I really appreciate that support. Thank you. 
Cool. Well, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. So thank you. I think I'll get it ordered tonight and get it here. I probably should have ordered it and read it before I had you on the podcast. <laughs> That's okay. But like I said, before we start, and if you ever want me to come back, I happen to be available. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I would. I think I definitely would like you to come back on, um, probably four or five months from now, and then we'll do this again, and uh, maybe we'll have some answers. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we'll fix the world here. Yeah, no, I appreciate yeah. it. And thanks again to Mike connecting us. I do appreciate that a lot, too. Oh, yeah, he's a he's a stand up guy. So I like him a lot. Um, so back to closing thoughts. Uh, I think just uh, know that you're not alone. I mean, that's a cliche for sure, but you aren't alone. And there is always hope. Um, there's there's always, always Nope. You froze up a little bit yeah, there. I yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> um, yeah, I just was j just going to say that um, you're, you're never alone. That is a cliche, but, but you are never alone and that there is always, always hope. Well, that is good advice and uh, kind of feeds into usually my closing line there of, uh, you know, if you are struggling to reach out, there are resources available you aren't alone. You're not going through this. You're not the only person who has been through something like this. Um, if you know somebody that is struggling, reach out, let them know you care, let them know there are resources out there. Um, yeah. And thanks for stopping by and we will see you next time. <laughs>